so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome back to another episode of Weekly Tech, a technology and ethics podcast focused on navigating this digital age with wisdom. Weekly Tech is a project of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, and I'm your host, Jason Thacker. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning, which is designed to help you think deeply about the pressing technology issues of the day and also to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. In this episode, I'm joined by my friend, Dr. Matt Arbo, who's an associate professor of theological studies and the director of the Center for Faith and Public Life at Oklahoma Baptist University. We talk about his work in public theology and virtue ethics. Prior to his arrival at OBU, Dr. Arbo served for three years as an assistant professor of Christian ethics at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri. He's the author of The Virtues, An Introduction and Outline, Walking Through Infertility, Biblical, Theological, and Moral Counsel for Those Who Are Struggling, and his first book, Political Vanity, Adam Ferguson and the Moral Tensions of Early Capitalism. His essays and articles are wide-ranging on moral and political questions, appearing in several edited volumes in top-tier journals. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Dr. Arbo, thank you so much for joining us here on Weekly Tech. As we get started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and some of your primary research interests? Yeah, sure. Yeah, thanks for having me um, on the podcast. Well, I, I'm, um, I'm kind of from all over the South. Um, I teach uh, now and have for the past six years or so at... Um, Oklahoma Baptist University. I teach um, Christian ethics here and some other um, history of theology, history of philosophy courses. I taught for a few years before that, before um, coming to OBU at Midwestern Seminary, uh, also teaching Christian ethics. We are members, and I'm an elder at Frontline Church in Oklahoma City. Uh, my wife is a, um, she's a religious liberty attorney. Um, she um, does um, lots of nonprofit law, lots of counseling and legal advising, and um, she's quite good at that. And I have to we say, have she's boys. a very good writer, by the way. She's written. She is a very good writer. She's a, she's a much better. Uh, so yeah, she really is a very good writer. Ashley. Yeah, thanks. She's a very good writer. She's very clear, um, very clear thinker. She's a much clearer thinker than I am, that's for sure. Um, and we have three boys, and um, we live in Oklahoma City. Um, and have for a few years now. So um, that's that's kind of us. My, um, my research at, in the past 10 years has kind of, moved here and there. Uh, my early research is on uh, ethical questions in modern political economy. And my uh, that research is particularly addressed in the early modern period, so late 18th century, um, particularly this Scottish context. And that's, that, that research has been published, a book called Political Vanity. And then since I've um, since teaching, I've taken up a few different projects. Um, most of them have been more... Um, 
for, for, for popular audiences, so pastors and lay people. So I've written on infertility and, um, and treatments of infertility and the way the church can handle that and think better about it. Uh, it was a book I published with Crossway a few years ago. And um, working on a book now on the virtues. Uh, I've got a couple of other academic pursuits. I'm working on something on deceit and on um, a kind of introduction to a general introduction to Christian ethics, but it's not it's not quite crystallized yet. But that's a project that's a few years off. So I've, I've sort of think since teaching, I think just the natural, practical, you know, and um, ordinary movement of things has just confronted me with questions and challenges that churches face. And so I've just given a lot of time and attention to practical, recurring questions that um, God's people are concerned about. Um, so that's that's what's occupied me at least the last six to eight years or so. Yeah, and I know, I one, I really appreciate a lot of your writing and the work that you're doing at OBU. And I know over the last few decades or so, there's been a growing interest in the field of public theology, even though a lot of the concepts have been around for generations and centuries even. Um, the formal kind of discipline of public theology kind of formalized over the last few decades. Can you help us understand what is public theology and how that's distinct from, say, like political theology? Yeah, that's something I'm working on right now, as it happens, um, as a kind of side project. The way public theology is discussed today and used in contemporary discourse is often um, pliable and sometimes the point of amorphous, um, mm. in part because we tend to think of the public as, or what counts as public, as self-evident. Um, and so we, we use ideas like public square to stand in for something that we think everybody knows what looks like this. You know, here are its boundaries, and here is its shape, and here is its spirit. But in, and, but in point of fact, in, in the concrete, in the detail, it's, it's much more complicated. Um, Public isn't just the opposite of private, for example. Um, my, my own view is that, um, that Christian political theology is the much um, longer, deeper, richer tradition, but that public theology has emerged, in, in a sense, from it in the past several centuries in different iterations, um, primarily to, in a way, it kind of specifies audience. It does a few other things too, but to just make it a bit simpler, it identifies audience. So it's theology that is intended for um, a wider audience, possibly even um, those outside uh, the church, you know, uh, broader secular audiences. Um, that then uh, it depends very much on how it's done, how the theology is done, what's, what sort of assumptions are made about the public and its understanding about religious claims, particularly, say, narrower confessional claims that Christians might make. Um, so I see public theology when it's, um, being done right and faithfully as a, a kind of practice within Christian political theology. Um, mm -hmm. And so should kind of emerge fruitfully from that tradition and, and so be conversant with it. In terms of the field of public theology, are there any kind of key thinkers or key leaders in the area? What are some of the seminal works that maybe readers should pick, our listeners should pick up if they're interested in digging a little deeper? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I I tend to think of older figures. Um, so I think people could profitably read um, Ronald Niebuhr and uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. They occupy a time where the public is generally more familiar with Christian language and conceptuality. Yeah. And so their reach as a public 
as public theologians, they don't call them, I mean, Bonhoeffer doesn't call himself that, um, but they, they are that, and their reach is significant, um, not just for that reason, but because they're so intimately familiar with the wider Christian theological tradition, particularly the particularly Christian political thought. Um, those are two, I think, remarkable and very different um, 20th century examples. But arguably, Soren Kierkegaard is a fascinating example of Christian political the- and public theology, um, just because of his personality and the sort of um, project that he undertook as the, you know, as the gadfly, you know, um, making criticisms, but also, you know, self-styled irony and that kind of thing. There's a, and then kind of moving, I guess, you know, I could give it further back. I mean, I think you could arguably say that a kind of public theology is being done by Augustine and Luther and um, so many other important figures. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then more recently, public theology, I think, has shifted. I think it's shifted um, to a tremendous extent um, with the web and various, you know, um, social technologies that have just changed how we think about discourse in some pretty fundamental ways. Um, so, you know, that I think in terms of like the older, like the 19th to 20th century tradition of public theology is, you know, there's kind of a late um, figure like Max Stackhouse who taught at Princeton for a while. Um, and then it, then it changes considerably and it's um, in public theology is really m- more an idiom of like theological reflection within um wider popular audiences and that kind of thing. But that, so those are a few sources. I, I could mention a few more, but um, I think those, those few people would be really instructive. No, I think that's really helpful. And for listeners' sake, we'll make sure to put all of those in the show notes so you can click over to links and a few kind of recommended books from Dr. Arbo. I want to dig in a little bit kind of on that political distinction where you talk about political theology versus public theology. In your first book, Political Vanity, you wrote about some of the moral tensions of early capitalism through the lens of Adam Ferguson. Can you briefly describe uh, kind of the significance of Ferguson and his thought and how some of those ideas apply to today's current debates over capitalism, ethics, and church and state relations? Yeah. So Adam Ferguson is a much lesser known um, figure of the Scottish Enlightenment. Um, he is he sort of stands in a in the shadow of figures like Hume, David Hume and Adam Smith, who whose work we're perhaps much more familiar with. Certainly on economic questions, um, Smith, though the Hume in a way precedes him um, in many in many important respects. Um, I, Ferguson is unique because he's willing to make important departures with what is at the time the sort of standard or broader Scottish consensus about how the economy could be structured. Um, it's, it's, a, it's an era of significant economic change. Um, it's moving from a mercantilist system to a more generally capital, what we will call a capitalist system. It's not capitalism at the time, but it will become that. And the proposals are to essentially liberate the economy to the widest extent possible, um, and allow you know human passions essentially to drive growth. And uh, there's all kinds of undergirding moral theory that is a part of that proposal. It isn't just sort of oh, it's advantageous. So for, I'll give you to give you an example. Hume has an essay um, called "Jealousy of Trade," which essentially um, justifies uh, jealousy as a um, essentially a central power to um, the movement and expansion and progress of the market, and that jealousy should be harnessed and, uh, and implicitly, it should be um, cultivated and encouraged, because that's the fuel of growth. And uh, this is actually connected to Hume's wider 
you know, moral philosophy. But but these are all these are these are the kinds of ideas that are germinating at the time. Not to mention just a latent a latent commitment to uh, social progress. Um, but not the progress like we tend to think of it today, but just like the movement of mankind through the ages, you know, through the stages of history, as it were. And that um, some optimism about what's rationally possible. It's very much, you know, um, a spirit of enlightenment. And Ferguson isn't, isn't, it isn't that he is not a figure of the enlightenment. It's that he's willing to put hard questions to the optimisms about um, intrinsic and inevitable progress, for example, um, and willing also to make some criticisms of the way vices and virtues are being treated among some of his contemporaries. Um, and also willing to say that there could be some um, complications um, in, the long, in the more proximate and remote consequences of certain liberalizing policy within political economy that we don't anticipate. It could, in his view, um, erode social bonds in some irrecoverable ways if we don't pay close attention to that, if we don't think very carefully about moral limits. So he's a he's an intensely moral thinker, and um, his kind of famous work is called An Essay on the History of Civil Society, which is really very much a kind of moral and political philosophy. But he's, he's lesser known, and he's partly lesser known because in a way his ideas didn't win out, which is so, so often the case in much history. Um, but he did find a significant audience in Germany, and so lots of work has been done, you know, scholarship anyway, to sort of show his reception into some German circles in the 19th century. But that's uh, that's him. That's kind of the very, very small snapshot, and um, trying to reduce much of a book down to a, you know a few minutes remark. But um, like a lot of figures in the 18th century, particularly in, in enlightenments like that one, the disciplinary boundaries are all blurred. You know, you're just you're just just doing philosophy, and you're just sort of doing theology. Though it's at the time, it's not called that. It's more called natural religion, and yeah. so it's focused on uh, the sort of possible religious themes that we see in natural processes. So it's a very, it's a very, it's a peculiar era, but one that's, uh, we're still very much standing in the wake of. How do you think some of his ideas then apply to some of the maybe current debates that we're having over ethics and public morality, even issues of capitalism or church-state relations? Is there any kind of bridge to a lot of the contemporary challenges to our faith? Yeah, um, they don't have much to say, and he doesn't have much to say about church-state relations. There's something just sort of assumed about the existence of the church and its ubiquity uh, in this period still. But um, he does have something to say about our own contemporary understandings of um, market economies. And one of them is just the pessimism about our about progress in, in terms of you know, where the inevitable trajectory of society goes under um, this particular economic arrangement. Um, often there's, um, there's an assumption of infinitude of, you know, endless resources and endless energies, but, um, that isn't the case that there's a tremendous amount of limitation built right within us. Um, partly because of sin, partly because, um, that there is a structure, a moral structure to the universe. And, um, so when, when he says that, for example, that liberalizing policy, which is meant to cultivate wealth um, on a on a much higher and wider scale, um, in a sort of inevitable, predictable way, and say that he'll say that, that that may not be the case, and we we may not fully appreciate what happens when that is acquired, and what sort of new attitudes and appetites are ignited and fueled, and which ones aren't, uh, which which other important virtues are suppressed or um, corrupted. And like, and, and so as a result, what will that mean for us in our society? How we are actually bonded together? What is it that formally unites a society and makes it what it is, um, as a as as a group doing something together 
positively um, and not just competitively. Um, so it puts, you know, he's a, putting a question to any kind of contractarian arrangement in some ways, but it certainly puts a moral question to some of the assumptions made about what's just sort of status quo or obvious um, about um, certain certain basic capitalist principles. Um, he isn't to, isn't going to say anything like it should be dispensed with or it should be rejected altogether or anything like that. He's asking just the harder moral questions like, well, what does this mean for individual virtue? What does this mean for the sustainability of social unions and these sorts of things, so, which, are, which are perennial and now very much pressing questions, uh, particularly at the time we feel like the discourse, capital D, is um, putting a, a tremendous amount of strain on social union. Yeah, and I know one of the kind of a lot of the challenges in contemporary society specifically focus around the intersection of technology um, and our public discourse and kind of the public arrangement and civic society in general. Are there any specific challenges that you see that technology is kind of highlighting or bringing out and any questions that are arising between the intersection of technology and even issues like public theology? Yeah, I think um, I tend to think about, I try anyway, to think ethically about technology in the sort of plural, as sort of um, so ethics of technologies uh, because of just how many and how diffuse and complicated they are. Um, I'm not... Um, a technophile <laughs> in any in any way. I'm, uh, I feel in some ways kind of a primitive uh, a primitivist in that in that respect. Um, but I've tried to think more about social media, particularly and any in the sort of battery of technologies that make social media possible. And um, the more I've thought about this, and particularly since I've taught about it and discussed it with students over the last, uh, particularly last so eight to uh, seven eight years, um, my sense increasingly is is that there's um that we're reaching a kind of inner limit uh i, I mean particularly like a limit of spirit and um maybe even human consciousness to sustain um what we have tried to sustain the last decade um i detect sometimes very palpable resentment for inheriting a kind of um social system that particularly for my students um, that they didn't, they didn't create, had, they had no part in forging, but this is the, these were, these are the terms they were given, you know, to have friendships mediated through devices, to have discussions mediated through apps, um, to not see the human face, to have anxiety about phone conversations where you hear a voice and the conditions of the communication and the actual conversation are not determined in advance. And there, there are, there are kind of very specific features of our ordinary technical life that's um, in the mediations of our social life that are so, so powerfully formative, um, both on our feelings about ourselves and about others, on our imaginations. That um, and So I've, I sort of follow um, an idea that the uh, late Canadian um, political philosopher George Grant made, um, which is that, um, that technology, when we recognize that technology forms us, as we form it, you know, so we give, we make things, we make these various technologies. Some of them are devices, but there are other technologies too, to, in a sense, assist us in this world to make things a little more convenient, to make work a little easier. Um, but the, what happens in, in giving them existence is that they also correspondingly form us and they shape our, our very sense of ourselves and even um, our sense of our, our futures. Um, so that that formative power is is often either unrecognized or underrecognized, uh, and so my interest as an ethicist is mostly focused on that the formative power of technology. Um, I think um, 
that ends up being a bit more fruitful than trying to speculate as to all the you know you know all, all the possible utilitarian um, implications that technologies have. Um, but I, I do I do really um, worry sometimes about uh, individual formation, but then also on a on a wider scale what this what these deep individual formations mean collectively um, and being able to sustain conversation, real conversation, but also of real reciprocity and um, in a meaningful sense, solidarity where uh, we can be with one another in each other's presence and um, forge friendships you know, um, that are real and lasting and self-giving. So um, that's, that's, a pic- that's a picture of some of what I've been trying to think about ethically with technology. You could talk about other technologies that are applied like in medicine, say, or in warfare. And uh, I think the shape of the considerations differs a little bit. Still thinking about the formative um, implications, but what becomes most pronounced and what's, say, backgrounded shifts a little bit. Yeah, and I know the formative aspect of technology is something we focus on a lot here on Weekly Tech, especially uh, through thinkers like George Grant, uh, Jacques Ellul, and kind of this mm. overarching understanding of technology and how it's shaping us and to make it very Christian and in many ways how it's discipling us and making mm-hmm. us into its own image. Um, you see that through a lot of Ellul's thought, um, specifically on like the efficiency principle and things like that. And so we've covered mm-hmm. a little bit of that here on Weekly Tech. I want to shift gears slightly, though, to kind of pick up on that formative aspect of technology and shift over to some of your recent work that you're working on right now in terms of virtue ethics. Um, I know for some listeners, the concept of virtue ethics might be brand new. Some might have some familiarity with it. What is virtue ethics and what is this field and how does this kind of intersect with the broader field of Christian ethics? So it's a great question. Virtue ethics is um, among the oldest traditions of um, moral thought, extending all the way back into antiquity and even you know, centuries before the time of Jesus and the Stoics, for example, uh, precede. And they're concerned about Stoic, uh, excuse me, about um, virtue. But virtues um, are excellences, and I describe them as excellences of soul. Um, what we sometimes call character. I don't. I don't prefer that word quite so much because it's a bit general, um, but it, it, it's suitable for our discussion. Um, yeah. It's who we are. and it, it, They are excellences, they are traits that typify us. Um, so there are, like, for example, the cardinal virtues. There are, there are four cardinal virtues. Cardinal, just that, that word just means hinge. So, of course, there are more than four. But um, according to, say, like classical figures like Aristotle, um, these four are very basic, so basic, in fact, that each kind of involve the other. So you've got prudence and justice and temperance and courage, and each is involved in the other. So in other words, to have wisdom, you also need a little bit of justice and temperance and courage, and that would apply to then the other, other ones as well. Um, now, there are more, but um, these, are sort of, these sort of function as a basis or foundation. Um, of course, in Christianity, we have, we have other. We don't have virtue functioning specifically in the text, but um, there are what the tradition has taken to be the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love, and that these are all co-involved too. And they um, they are they, they can and should uh, typify us in our character. So there's a couple couple things um, practically to take away from those descriptions. Um, and one is that it matters who we are becoming. Um, that we are living a life in a particular direction. On the Christian account, of course, we're living our life in discipleship, in subjection, faith, and obedience to Jesus Christ, learning um, how to live in the world 
in ways he'd have us live, um, according to his call. And um, that means taking on a certain form of life, and the virtues help describe that life. They don't comprehend it, but they help us, um, in some sense, understand it better and organize it, and they give us something to latch onto and also to to begin to embody. Uh, it requires practices. It's not like you can just flip cognitive switch and suddenly be and suddenly decide to really commit yourself um, to courage. It requires discipline and practice, and that that can over time uh, result in the better and um, more visible embodiment of that of that virtue. But it's another um, key implication too, and it is it is that there is a purpose in life. <laughs> that human life has an end, um, a telos, and on the Christian account, this is no worry at all. We know what that is. It's God <laughs> and um, the eternal life in the heavenly city. But in, a, in an age like ours, which is pluralist and which the ends are, there, there being an idea of such a thing as there being an end in life, there being a telos, is disputed or, is, or totally disregarded. It, can, it makes virtue ethics that much more peculiar, but it makes it, I think, peculiar in some important and helpful ways to the church's witness. So, um, what I, my, my project and, and doing the book on the virtues is really just to reintroduce contemporary Christian audiences to the virtues, because what I have found is that the vocabulary of the virtues is almost entirely gone, um, and that the virtues have been lost to other characteristics that are nowhere near as rich uh, or as deep or as um, lasting as the virtues have been. Uh, there's a reason why the Christian tradition has drawn on them so easily and um, and incorporated them into so much of its moral instruction and its catechesis and much else. So, um, in a way, what I'm trying to do is revive that, renew interest, and reintroduce uh, people to these these ideas, and and to show how how long they've been part of our own uh, self understanding as God's people, and to commend them for for churches um, that wish to live in obedience to. Um, Christ's commission to make disciples of the nations. Well, I know I, for one, am very excited about this work. Uh, virtue ethics is kind of seeing a resurgence uh, within mm-hmm. Christian communities, but as well as even in secular communities, which is I find really interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's kind of a resurgence of virtue ethics, narrative ethics, and I think a lot of that is it's kind of spawning from the lack of depth that we see sometimes in a utilitarian ethic and the ways mm-hmm. kind of, as you said, without having that telos, without having a goal in life. You see this through Shane and Valor's recent work from Oxford. I don't know if you've checked it out yet. It's Mm-mm. Technology and the Virtues, a Philosophical Guide for a Future Worth wait, worth Wanting. Mm. And she, in that, charts out kind of a new set of techno-moral virtues, as she says. And so you're seeing that. You're also seeing a lot of work done in narrative ethics, uh, specifically in relation to technology. But do you see any kind of – as this will be kind of our last question for today. I mean, we could go on and on talking Mm -hmm. about all this stuff. Um, But is there kind of a connection that you see between technology and that formative aspect of the resurgence of uh, virtue ethics and even narrative ethics? Yeah, there are. Um, when we recognize that technologies are formative, we would then, importantly, from an ethical point of view, need to be able to distinguish whether or not those formations are assistive to our um, formation as Christian disciples or not. And that, that, will, that will be a difficult task. Um, because what we often will tend to think is that it's assistive in a way that makes, say, life more convenient. And so it does, in other words, it does some other things that we like, but they may not, they may not obviously be 
assistive to our formation as a disciple or being conformed to the image of the Son. Um, it, it, it might mean foregoing certain conveniences because they, because say some technology or something mediated by technology isn't, uh, isn't really doing that work, isn't really assistive to discipleship or to mission. Um, but one of the inherent powers of so much contemporary technology particularly is to veil and conceal that counterformation or the malformation that actually is, is right there within it. Um, and that's uh, one of the great, that's a great talent. It's um, really, it's, it's essentially a kind of deceit in some, in some more pronounced effects um, where the assumption is that continued use will not really result in malformation um, even though there's no, there's no, there's no, there's insufficient evidence that it really does, um, say, strengthen faith or um, in, induce obedience at the right times. Uh, so I'm, I, I'm thinking particular personal technologies as kind of an indirect example there, but um, there would be there would be others. Um, I think um, the sheer level of saturation has made it difficult to think outside the possibility of technology in so many domains yeah. of our life. Um, and that's an increasingly important thing to do. And I, I, so I, I think that just recovering um, practices like silence and solitude, not just simply say in a spare 10 minutes in the morning, though whatever time can be given to it <laughs> is important, but practices that are, that are, that are more routine um, so that we can in a way ground ourselves again in uh, God and his presence and, uh, and ask in prayer for him to invite us into the new forms of life that he has for us. And um, that, that'll, that'll mean make, if that's, if that's tried and it's risky uh, in, in contemporary life, um, that, that might mean some very dramatic reformulation of where we're thinking about how life is supposed to go and, and, and what can be incorporated in it and what, what can't be. Um, but that's the, that's the adventure of Christian discipleship where the hard questions are asked and pursued in the terms that God's given to us. Yeah, and obviously there's so much there that we could really dive so into much. and keep the conversation going for a long time. Um, but I, for listeners' sake, we'll kind of cut it off here. Dr. Arbo, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. I'm really fascinated in a lot of the things that you also are interested in, so we'll have to have a further conversation, especially once you get a little further along on the Virtue Ethics book. Uh, we'll have to have you back on the podcast to dive in a little bit more specifically on that. But I just want to th say thank you for joining us here on Weekly Tech, and I really appreciated our conversation and look forward to your coming work. Hey, thanks, Jason. I really enjoyed it. Well, from all of us here at Weekly Tech, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoy Weekly Tech, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also help to share the word about Weekly Tech with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Dr. Arbo and learn more about the works that he mentioned in the show notes. You can also sign up to receive the Weekly Tech email briefing each Monday morning. It's designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing technology issues of our day, as well as to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe at jasonpacker.com slash weeklytech. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week.